Welcome back to the Writer's Right Podcast, the show where every writer has the right to speak their mind. I'm your host, Joshua Howe, and as always, we'll be giving attention to the last thing my guest has written and the writing process. It feels so good to be back. Today's guest is a writer for Liberty Ballers, uh, one of the most consistent content creators on NBA Twitter, and the only guy I actually know with a real English accent. It's Tom West. How are you doing, buddy? Hey, man. I'm doing good. Thanks. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, appreciate you coming on. Um, is it as freakishly hot in London as it is here right now in Ontario, Canada? It's pretty hot. I mean, for England standards, it's a bit of a heat wave now. It's 20 degree, 26 degrees Celsius today, so oh yeah, it's a bit crazy here, yeah. <laughs> yeah, they've already started doing the warnings here where they're like, okay, time to stay inside. You you can't leave now. You're, everything's melting, so you know it's just the worst. Hopefully, Kawhi Leonard's enjoying that. He hates the cold, so maybe you know he'll hang around exactly. when it's hot here. Um, (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So today, uh, I wanted to bring you on to talk about uh, your latest piece about the Sixers. Um, It's up on Liberty Ballers right now. You can read it. It's called, The Sixers Are Ready to Embrace a New Identity and Elite Defense. The Sixers have had an offseason. You know, we're only like, (laughs) what's it, July 5th? Yeah. Everything happens all at once now. I'm very happy that they've moved free agency to 6 p.m. on July, uh, sorry, on June 30th, rather than starting everything at midnight, especially because it's July 1st is Canada Day here, so everything's always crazy. But it was much better this year. Um, I wasn't, like, super tired hearing everything. So that was super nice. And, you know, the Sixers were one of the teams that made a bunch of moves quickly, along with, honestly, almost every other team in the league. Guys already had decisions made, tampering, blah, blah, blah. But yeah, it's been it's been really uh, exciting to see what the Sixers have done because they were one of the teams that you know were like Embiid said potentially a hand wash away from winning a championship <laughs> or getting to the finals or whatever, and so they have made a bunch of moves like you know they've lost some players some key players JJ Redick Jimmy Butler uh, they've gained some players like Al Horford Josh Richardson. Uh, Mike Scott's back. <laughs> they uh, kept Tobias yeah. Harris, obviously. So, just in general, I want to start off with, like, what are your initial thoughts on all these crazy Sixers moves? I think, as a whole, they've done a really good job through free agency, just because if Jimmy Butler was leaving and they did offer him the five-year max, if he wanted to go to Miami, then things couldn't have really worked out any better for them, because I think they had a much better sign-and-trade package with Josh Richardson than uh, Houston could have when those Mm -hmm. rumors were heating up. So really, Butler wanting to go to Miami was the perfect spot in terms of the Sixers getting a really quality young player back. He's going to be really good value for the next couple of seasons um, at just over $10 million a year. And I think they filled out the bench nicely. I think Carlo Quinn, for the minimum, is a good deal. Uh, Raul Neto at this point of free agency uh, I thought Seth Curry would have been an ideal target but he was you know, a bit too expensive so I think Neto is a pretty good pickup. Uh, he could actually hit some catch and shoot threes rather than TJ McConnell so that's a nice bonus for them um, and I think Al Horford is interesting. I mean he's a great player um, the offence there is the tricky thing um, exactly how it works next to Embiid um, and the biggest loss, obviously, is having Butler's shot creation. You know, he turned into their, their sort of lead guard through the playoffs, especially the Toronto series. And having someone to create in clutch situations is what they didn't have before all their trades last season. And Butler gave them that. And now it's gone again. 
So I think that's probably their biggest concern and how they gel Horford with Embiid. You know, they're both better at centre. Um, so I think staggering will be big. But I think overall, what they've done is is pretty good. And like you said, they've brought Ennis back, Scott's back. Um, I really like Matisse, uh, Matisse Thibel. So I think I they've filled the team out pretty nicely, considering their situation. Yeah, um, I like pretty much all these moves, even the moves they made on the margins I like. This team is going to be massive. That's one of the first things you, like that comes to mind when you think about the Sixers. And they already had like pretty good length, pretty good size. They were already a pretty good defensive team. Obviously had some issues uh, every time Embiid sat. But like you think about this team right now, and you look at it, it'd be like a Simmons, Richardson, Harris, Horford, Embiid is probably the projected starting lineup. Although you talk about how, like, yeah, Horford and Embiid probably be staggered quite a bit. But, like, besides Richardson, you mentioned in your article who he's uh, 6'6", all the players are 6'9 or taller, which is insane to think about. Yep. <laughs> and it's just, like, it's just ter- it's, or it's already so terrifying to think of uh, Horford out there with Embiid, like, the dual rim protection there is kind of wild. And uh, you also bring up in your article about uh, in the playoffs, like the Raptors, who it's so weird to say eventually became NBA champions, so, like they talk about how Philly was their toughest challenge along the way. And as someone who was deeply invested in that series, watching that series, talking about that series, writing about that series, boy, did it sure look that way. I mean, like Philly's so big, they have so much athleticism, they're so physical. Um, they made it really tough for a team like Toronto, who's not, you know, they aren't particularly physically gifted uh they they just happen to have a lot of really smart guys and even Kawhi, who's you know he's uh he's athletic and all that but he's not like a lebron james or a Giannis coming at you down the floor just philly was so so long so big so quick um so young and you have a danny green quote in there talking about how that was like the toughest challenge and uh it's just going to be it's going to be insane to see a team that's now got even more of that um, on the defensive side of things next season. like, Do you think this team is going to be the best defensive team in basketball next year? I think they can be. I think, yeah, I think by the end of the season, I think they will be. Um, I looked at, I mentioned a couple of numbers in the article, and with Embiid on the floor, the Sixers essentially had what was tied to the best defense in the league mm-hmm. last year. They had the exact same defensive rating with Embiid on the floor as Milwaukee did. Right. Um, because he changes the whole team, but the problem is they had weak, some weak uh, perimeter defenders around him. You know, Butler coasted for a lot of the regular season. JJ Redick is obviously a weakness. TJ McConnell is a weakness, um, and their, their pick and roll and point of attack defense was always an issue, um, especially using a drop coverage. Their, their small guards just got taken out by screens, and that opened things up for them. And their their backup center rotation just was a problem the whole season. They didn't have anyone who could stretch the floor and protect the rim or really do either at an effective level. So I think that change alone is going to be huge. Like we said, staggering Horford, the fact that you can always have either Horford or Embiid anchoring the defense mm-hmm. is insane. Like That's an amazing luxury to have. Um, and, you know, Carlo Quinn is a solid um, backup center as well who can provide some rim protection. So mm-hmm. I think that's going to make a huge difference. And like you just said, they're huge. Um, Jackson Frank pointed out on Twitter that before they signed Neto, everyone on the roster had a wingspan of at least 6'10", which is just crazy. Yeah. Um, passing lanes are going to be small. 
like you said, the dual rim protection with Horford and Embiid. Um, Richardson is going to be huge to help defend the point of attack. Um, I just think, yeah, they, they basically have everything they need now to be the best defense in the league. It's just the offense, which is the main concern. But I think they can work things out. Yeah, one of the craziest things to me when you, you do one of those, you know, you step back and look at this team compared to last year's team, and it's only been like, you know, days, weeks between those two, uh, these two versions of the team. But like going from, you know, potentially if you're staggering and you have Horford coming in in the second unit, like going from Amir Johnson to Al Horford is insane. Yeah. <laughs> just just that mere thought is is horrifying for like every other fan base. That's insane. Um, even Kylo Quinn, like the Sixers really had, they were so thin for so long because they were so top heavy and, yeah. um, yeah, everybody wants to focus on how they lost Butler, but like Jason Richardson's not a scrub. He's really, I like him quite a bit. He's pretty good. And, you know, Tob- Tobias Harris had a tough time in the playoffs. I, I still like him in general, but he can do. And obviously, uh, uh you know, Al Horford is, is great and Simmons does what he does and Embiid also does what he does. So, you know, I'm, I'm not that concerned uh, about most of that stuff, but you talked about, like, so we mentioned quickly, like, Embiid and Horford. Do you think the Sixers may go the direction of, like, sort of doing their own kind of load management maybe for Embiid and maybe even for Horford as well, who's a bit older, um, just because they have all these big guys and they can bring them out uh, in and out interchangeably and they probably will stagger them quite a bit? Like, I, I don't imagine like you've said, that they're going to actually play them together a ton. Like I'm sure that, that Brown will play them together enough to get a get a feel for each other and see how it looks yeah. and how it works, but, yeah. like, you know. No, I definitely think that will happen. I think staggering when they're both playing. And I also think if you're trying to rest both players a little through the season and give them some games off, I think you can kind of alternate that so you have one of them left and you can kind of stagger their, their load management throughout the season that way as well rather than just... Um, managing their, mi- their minutes game to game uh-huh. um, because they still have the depth now to be able to maintain good centre play if they have at least one of them available. Um, so I think that makes things interesting as well. That gives Hawford more time at centre as well to you know give them some sort of more uh, more spacing with their lineups. They didn't have great uh, stretch five play at all last year. Um, Bolden shot well from three, but he didn't have the defence to back it up, and he was still a little streaky. And when they did go for really small lineups with Simmons and Mike Scott as their front court, they just couldn't hold up defensively. So I think using Horford in that role as much as possible when you are giving Embiid some games off here and there, or if he misses a few games due to injury, I think that will be that will be really helpful as well because you want to keep them both as fresh as possible for the playoffs. Because last season they started off playing Embiid really heavy uh, early on in the season, and it's good from the standpoint that he could play but that took a toll through the season and it wasn't the right move to keep him fresh come the playoffs so I definitely think yeah they'll be they'll be pretty careful and, and smart with the load management yeah I interestingly enough I kind of see Horford like I, I have some similarities when I look at him uh, to Gasol with the Raptors just in terms of like being a, sort of a connective tissue piece with that team the team yeah. that he's on um especially in terms of, like, defense, where you're talking about specifically in this article. Like, he knows where to be. He's a really good help defender. He's quick for how big he is. He's a good pick-and-roll defender. 
we've already talked about the rim protection and how scary that could be. Uh, and like you mentioned in the piece, like he's really overqualified for the role that he's given here, which is you know why he probably will have a fair amount of time uh, playing away from Embiid um, because he can handle that kind of stuff. You mentioned as well in the article like <laughs> just how bad the Sixers were with Embiid off the floor defensively uh, as compared to him on the floor. You have it here that, yeah, like they had a 104.9 defensive rating with him beat on and then a 110.5 defensive rating with him off which was uh, tied for San Antonio uh, for 20th in the league which is just crazy <laughs> so like would you say that uh, that was the Sixers biggest concern more than anything else more than maybe some of the Jimmy stuff maybe more than some of the shooting issues whatever um, was that the Sixers biggest problem last year and have they solved it I think it probably, I think it probably was. Um, yeah, I do think the off the dribble creation stuff is big too. But yeah, I think primarily when you just look at the playoff numbers as well, things just kind of fell apart as soon as Embiid was off the floor. I can't remember the exact plus minus off the top of my head, but I think it was about a plus ninety three yeah. and a minus one hundred and eleven through the playoffs with Embiid or something like that. I mean, it was a, the swing was ridiculous. Um, Primarily, that's, you know, some of the blame has to go on other players for stepping up, but it is just such poor backup sense play because they didn't have anyone who could be relied upon. Even for short stretches, everyone was a liability. You know, Boban, you know, we all love him, but he just can't hold up against most matchups. He was he was solid against the Nets. That was a good matchup for him. They didn't have any stretch fives. He could, he could pull him away from the basket, but he just can't keep up uh, on the perimeter. He's not... He doesn't provide tons of protection around the rim either, really. Um, Bolden is just too inexperienced. Um, you know, the fouling, the defensive positioning, he's just he just doesn't have the IQ to really anchor the, the defense at five yet. He's, he's, he's a bit better in that role when you shift him to the four next to Embiid, maybe, but he can't take over that role. And Amir Johnson just isn't enough either. So now the fact that they have multiple options, they have a serviceable backup in Kylo Quinn, I think that alone would have been a pretty big signing not because O'Quinn is some amazing player he's only signed for a minimum contract but just because of how bad things were for the Sixers when Embiid was off because of their backup center play O'Quinn by himself would have been a pretty nice move for the Sixers this offseason but yeah I do think having Horford to take over most of the non-Embiid minutes is probably the most valuable thing they've got from that signing yeah or at least up there with how good a player he is in general and the defensive stuff. But yeah, I think the, yeah. the, the non B minute stuff is, is pretty big. Yeah. Underrated, I think the saddest thing about all this is that uh, Tobias Harris and Boban are no longer teammates for like, the <laughs> first time. I saw like a bunch of people were sad about it on Twitter. Harris has been all over Twitter putting up the sad emojis. Yeah, it's kind of, you know, they need to do a movie or something. Hopefully the podcast tape's going, but... Yeah, um, get, get Tobias in the next John Wick film. Yeah, exactly. There we go. John Wick 4. It'll mostly just be about Harris and, uh, and uh, Boban. We don't even really need John Wick into that much. Um, okay, so then we talk about guys like, we move on a little bit to talk about guys like J.J. Redick, who maybe for like standard viewer, they go, okay, well, you know, you lost J.J. Redick, whatever. It's kind of lost in the Butler shuffle. But he was really, really important for the Sixers this past year. He was the best shooter because he's one of the best shooters in the league. Um, he like he can hit some when he's feeling it. Like that guy's hitting off balance 
you know, three-pointers on the move. He's coming around a ton of screens. Um, he's always moving around. Uh, he's fluid off ball. You know, he's like an 18-point-per-game scorer. You know, like, he's a good he's a good player. And uh, he's, his gravity alone was important for a team that didn't have a lot of it, especially when they made the Butler trade and they got rid of uh, two of their better shooters on the team. So shooting in general becomes... A bit more of a, a bit more of a question again. With the Sixers not a new question, but maybe a bit more of one here now. So, do you think, as things stand, do the Sixers have enough, uh, have enough shooting in general? But like, and even if they don't, can they make it up somewhere else? I think, yeah, I definitely think more shooting would help. Um, there's only so much they can do now. Obviously, Kyle Corver has now been mentioned as, you know, a possible buyout guy, possible yeah. target. Um, they're one of the teams interested in him. So that makes sense just to have, you know, he can play a, a low-minute role if they need a quick burst of shooting. He can be that guy, you know, off, off the back of the bench. Um, but otherwise, I think, I don't think they're too bad. I think Harris is going to bounce back in a big way next season. Um, he got a lot of criticism from Sixers fans because, yeah, understandably, he wasn't that great. Um, for quite a lot of the time, but a lot of it was just that he was missing threes at an unusually bad rate for him. You know, he was well over 40% through his whole time with the Clippers, and then he shot, you know, just over 32, I think, through the end of the regular season with the Sixers, and that's not who he is. He's he's better than that. So I think once he gets back into form and there's some positive regression, that will make a, a real difference. Um, Josh Richardson as well, he's a fine shooter, and I think he was overworked in Miami. He was often acting as like a sort of first or second option for them and that's not who he is he was taking more pull-up shots than you'd like to see from him I think if you rein him back as you will be in you know the sort of fifth starter he's going to be taking more catch and shoot opportunities and that suits his strengths um he's an upgrade from Butler in that sense because for a lot of the time Butler was with the Sixers he just wasn't interested in shooting catch and shoot threes he passed up a lot of shots um, his overall three-point volume was low um, so Richardson being more willing there helps. And Horford is a fine shooter as well. Um, you know, you have to respect him, even though he's only taking open shots. He's obviously not coming off screens, um, but he's still a decent shooter. And I think, like I said, him shifting to centre gives them those, uh, you know, Horford plus four shooter lineups and the smaller units that they didn't really get to use too much last season. You know, a couple of years ago when they were using Elias Sover in that role, it worked really well for them. So I think if they can go back to that, with obviously Horford is a massive upgrade, there are some things that they can do to keep up the shooting. Um, and obviously how guys like Thibault and Zaya Smith shoot will be big as well, because if their defense is as good as it looks and they can shoot, then that's huge for their bunch as well. Yeah, definitely. And I like, you know, I mean, some of the moves are, are draft picks and young guys they already had, like Zaire Smith and, and Thibault, who you just mentioned. But like bringing James Ennis back, I like that. Um, he's solid. Obviously, Scott can shoot. Um, Kylo Quinn, we talked about. I think Neto, he hadn't signed yet, right, when you wrote this article? Uh, no. no, he right, came right. just afterwards, yeah. Yeah, so, um, you know, former Jazz point guard um, addresses some concerns for Philly there. Like even a guy like that, like, is that is that a move that, like, that you just do you like in general? Like, is that kind of going to be something that kind of shores up what you're talking about there with the, uh, with the guys on the bench? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Uh, his, yeah. His name I should have mentioned. Um, yeah. Yeah. He's, he's a solid shooter. I think he's 30, 37%, sorry for his career. Um, he's been a little up and down, but he's, he's fine and he's willing to shoot, which is huge. You know, TJ McConnell 
his volume was so low, he'd hardly ever shoot, and he'd only take wide open shots with a really slow release when he <laughs> did. Um, and it just killed spacing, um, which is why they moved away from him in the playoffs, which was a good adjustment by Brett by Brett Brown. Um, and Jimmy Butler kind of took over that role, just so you had a bit of extra shooting there. But yeah, actually having another backup point guard who can shoot and will shoot um, is going to help too. And Shake Milton is probably going to get some more role, uh, some more minutes this season as well. Um, He's a decent shooter and he, he played well in the G League last season. So how much they get from him uh, will be interesting too. But yeah, they do have more options now and more shooting off the bench than they did last year. It's just the drop-off from Redick in the starting lineup uh, with the shift to Horford in there. That's the main thing, I think. Yeah, and speaking of point guards, um, Ben Simmons, they uh, gave him the max extension, right? I think you have to do that if you're Philly, obviously. He's already really really good he's super young he has lots of room to improve no matter how many people like to make fun of him uh for his shooting but it's also important to look at the Sixers as a team that wants to win now because they do and they're in a position to as well so why not his shooting does become an issue uh larger and larger issue really in the playoffs and like we saw it against Toronto in the playoffs uh this past year where and we kind of touched on this really briefly earlier about how Butler took over PG duties and, uh, you know, because Kawhi kind of took Simmons out of the game that way. And they had, uh, the Sixers adjusted by putting him in the dunker spot and stuff like that. And Butler ran the pick and roll and was the playmaker uh, primarily there. So now that he is gone, what what, does Sixers, what do the Sixers do there? Do they, and I mean, you know, in conjunction with giving him a max extension, you know, they're clearly betting on him to improve in some way, but he's, you know, he's still who he is at this moment, and they're looking to contend this coming year. So what do you think the Sixers are kind of are going to do during the season to kind of try and figure out that problem? Because it will be a problem again, if not with a team like Toronto, some other team uh, come playoff time. Yeah, well, I think, like you said, they're banking on some improvement. Um I don't think there's any way he's finished improving yet. Some people act like he's a finished product, um, but he isn't, I'm sure. Um, I wrote another article a little earlier in the off-season as well, um, just talking about some ways he can improve, even just adding a floater, uh, tightening his handle, um, working on his post-game, just little things like that, um, being used more as a role man. There are some small improvements he can make to help. Um, I think one of them is having him as the pick-and-roll screener. Mm-hmm. Um, it's still something he's working on. Uh, I think the idea of the idea of it is probably actually a little bit better than the product of it right now, just because he's still fairly inexperienced as a role man. He's hardly been used in that role. He still needs to work on his his control um, and his screening, setting solid picks. Um, but I think using him a little bit more like that is one one way to help. Um, I think using Horford, like I said, at centre, I. I keep going on about it, but I think that can really help because that helps their spacing. If you have Horford plus three shooters and Simmons, that just opens up the floor a little bit more. It lets Simmons cut off Horford's passing. You know, he can be more active diving to the rim. That's one way for him to improve. Um, And I think, yeah, I think letting him play off Horford, getting Harris running some more uh, pick and roll, Richardson running a little bit as well as a sort of lower option, and just making sure Simmons is moving hard off the ball, screening as much as possible. There was still room for him to do more of that in the playoffs. 
um, rather than just hanging in the dunker spot. I think they can be creative with how they use him. It's just more screening, more cutting, more rim rolling, and just generally more activity. And I think even if he doesn't have any more range, that can help a bit. But like you said, there's a there's a real limit to how effective he can be in the playoffs when you're facing an elite defense like Toronto's and he can't space the floor. But we'll see what happens. Yeah, that was one of the things I was concerned about in the playoffs was the Sixers moving him to be the on-ball screener and just rolling to the rim because the idea of, of him and Butler or whoever was handling the ball um, in that sort of one-two action was uh, kind of terrifying, to be honest. And uh, I, the inexperience there, obviously maybe why they didn't go to it so much, but um, I think a little bit, thankfully, uh, at least for Raptors fans, because there were a bunch of people who were really scared that the Sixers were going to go to that, and Simmons was suddenly just going to be rumbling down the middle of the lane, and you know, with you know, combined with how great of a passer he is, um, that idea was just horrifying. But uh, yeah, I agree. He's definitely not a finished product. All the you know, people love to make fun of him because of the shooting, like I said, but he's great and he's super young and he's only going to get better. So yeah, max extension makes sense. Near the end of the article, you mentioned some of the offensive concerns that uh, we've already talked about, and you know, but there's another one that we haven't really with the loss of Butler as well. It sounds kind of simple, but who's taking the last shots here? Harris, Tobias Harris just got paid, you know, the max uh, to come back to the team, and so um, which I, I think they kind of had to do. And yeah. so in some ways you're paying for him to be that guy, but he doesn't necessarily have to be. Do you think he is going to be that guy, or do you think they're going to look at a variety of options? I think it's going to depend on matchups. I think through the regular season, it's going to be a little bit of everyone. I think it's going to go between Harris and Embiid mostly, um, because Embiid is obviously still far and away the team's best player. Um, and I think this is mainly the concern in the playoffs, You know, when you have more of those close scenarios. Um, I think Harris can definitely do a bit more as a creator. Mm-hmm. Um, there's no way he's not as good as Butler. I think specifically the passing. Um, if a play breaks down and he can't create room for a shot, he just isn't the same playmaker to kick out to someone like Butler was. Um, so that's a concern as well. But I think one of the reasons that you know a lot of Sixers fans got it Harris was because of his change in production, but he can be a bit closer to the Clippers, Tobias Harris next mm-hmm. season by you know handling the ball a bit more, running some more pick and roll because he can score like that. Um, so they can definitely do more for him that way. Um, but I think yeah, a lot of it is going to be on B- in B two and one playoff matchup is already removed for them now uh, with Horford. Uh, on the team rather than in Boston, that's huge because he's always kind of been like the Embiid stopper. Mm-hmm. And there aren't too many guys that can guard Embiid that well. Obviously, Mark Gasol can defend him pretty well. But there aren't too many guys that they're going to come up against where Embiid doesn't have a good chance to get a decent shot off um, if he's working down low. And if he can keep working on his passing, then he can kick the ball back out. And he, he was getting better at handling double teams this season. So I think him, Harris, primarily... And you just kind of, yeah, you you see how they get on, um, and we'll see we'll see how that works through the season. How capable Harris is, I think you're counting on a bit of development from him, uh, Simmons, and a little from Richardson just to to keep growing as creators because that's kind of their best shot now. They don't have one clear cut option, so I do think you adjust a little bit through matchups. Yeah, there was one pass. I don't remember which game it was, 
but it was against Toronto in the playoffs, so I obviously remember it vividly. And it was near the end of the game, and the Sixers had got and beat the ball down the low post, and the Raptors sent the double. And yeah, kicked to Butler. Kicked, kicked to Butler. Yeah. I have never seen him pass like that. Pass was incredible. I couldn't yeah. believe it. Best pass of his career. It really was. Yeah. Like, it was the it was the Siakam Gasol double team, wasn't it? I think. Yeah. And yeah. he just flung it out, um, really smoothly arched it over the top of the the defense. Oh my god. Yeah. He he did improve. I I wrote about that a bit as well. Um, you know, there's plenty of ways for him to keep improving as a passer. Just you know, not missing reads, speeding up his decision making obviously still cutting down on some turnovers but he becomes so much harder to stop if he is you know more consistently beating these double teams because there aren't too many guys like I said who can control him one-on-one in the post or you know on face-ups from the elbows and it's harder to send those double teams and stop him if teams know he can make the extra pass and find the open shooter so I do think there are reasons to be positive about their crunch time offense in some aspects like that, you know, when thinking about their development, it's just how much Harris can do, I think, is the main concern in comparison to what we saw from Butler. Yeah, makes sense. Um, that'll be something interesting to keep an eye on throughout the season with them as they work through it. I'm sure they'll try a bunch of different things. I'm glad Brett Brown didn't get fired. There was a lot of talk about that, like, right around, kind of kind of, even before the series had ended. Yeah. Like, and is Brett Brown going to be held on? And I'm glad that that he was because uh, I honestly think that was the tough, toughest coaching matchup that that Nick Nurse had in the playoffs as well. And now again, the Warriors was mostly dictated by injuries. Not saying that Steve Kerr's not a great coach, but um, in the other situations, I felt like Nurse kind of had a handle on what was going on, and he didn't for parts of those Sixers uh, for part of the Sixers series. And I thought Brett Brown was pretty good, so I'm glad they kept him on. And everybody who um, seems to follow the Sixers closely, seems to like him. So I'm glad that he's uh, staying with the team. Yeah, yeah, Brett Brown's a good coach. I think he did a good job for the playoffs in general. Like you said, I think he made some good adjustments. Um, and, yeah, I don't, I don't know why he'd be fired. <laughs> people, love, people love to say he should be fired and then they have no better options to suggest. So that's always a fun debate on Sixers Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I want to move now to... Um, some of the other kind of half of this podcast, which is talking about the writing process and, and questions surrounding um, the writers that I talk to and, and how they go about what they do. And I mentioned at the top of this podcast that you're one of the most consistent writers that I see in the blogger sphere, especially through Twitter, NBA Twitter. And I'm curious about how you maintain that consistency when things get tough, because we see people get burnt out all the time. It's like a legitimate problem, not just like with millennials or whatever people want to say, but like with everybody. And you see it on Twitter because people are so, you know, just tweeting about whatever. And and they'll say, you know, I haven't written in a while. I've been so burnt out. How do you handle how do you handle that? And um, how do you kind of just keep pushing through? Yeah, I mean, it is tough sometimes. Um, You know, life gets in the way when you're doing this on the side of a full time job and you have other things going on. Like it can be difficult. Um, yeah I think for me I often have random writing ideas a lot it's sometimes just getting the ideas down Mm -hmm. that is the challenging part I often find that my best writing times come late at night um, Mm -hmm. before going to bed so Mm -hmm. I often feel like when I have got through a day if I can just sit down for an hour or two 
before going to sleep, I can generally sort of get a lot of my writing done then. But I think, yeah, it's tough. I think my writing's changed a bit in the last couple of years as well. I do a lot more film stuff now. So yeah. I think if I am seeing stuff in games that I want to talk about, it's a bit easier to come up with content in a way rather than trying to like have a big take that I've been building up sort of thing, if you know what I mean. Like um, just a purely opinionated column if I'm seeing things in games that I can talk about. I think it's easier to come up with the ideas sometimes. Um, and like through the off season, just trying to come up with series ideas and that kind of thing um, always helps. And also I just think the depth that you can go into covering a single team can help too, because I used to write about the NBA as a whole. And sometimes, you know, it's harder to find a specific idea that's not already been covered by someone else because uh -huh. there are hundreds of people writing about the NBA or, you know, just beating someone else to it. Um, I think in a team, you know, I can spend a whole article writing about Zaya Smith's defense that, that no one else might want to write about. Um, so I think that can help a little bit as well when you can be so specific and detailed on a few guys um, on a team that maybe, you know, not other people are thinking of. I think that probably helps. But yeah, there are definitely struggles um, with creating content consistently. It, it can be hard sometimes. When I watch games, um, I kind of do the same thing, and it was something that I didn't do initially and sort of, like, uh, I want to say, like, develop my way into, which was noticing certain things. You know, if you're watching, like, every single game of a team that you follow, it's much easier to notice little discrepancies or whatever, and you can kind of write those down, and they become piece ideas and maybe evolve into something larger. Um, so I do find that to be super useful. And you mentioned... You, like a lot of writers, you put a lot of effort into adding video into your pieces, um, which I always uh, enjoy watching the video when writers are talking about, you know, whatever kind of situation they're talking about uh, on court. Um, how much time does that take for you, like in a general piece, uh, to put video stuff in? And do you like video work or do you find it to be a, a bit of a grind? <laughs> uh, yeah, it can be a grind sometimes. I think sometimes <laughs> if <laughs> I have an idea, let's say... And at this point of the season, I need to go back and watch a bunch of games from, you know, months ago now mm -hmm. to kind of find the film and rewatch the possessions to kind of reaffirm what I'm thinking. That right. can be when it is a bit of a grind. You know, if I need to feel like I have to rewatch five, six games from the Toronto series to be able to write what I'm writing about confidently, you know, with everything fresh in my mind. Sometimes it can be hard to find those five plus hours to watch all that game back. You know uh, that can be when it's it's challenging. It's you know it's, you have to create a lot more time through the week. But I think when I'm doing things more on the fly, you know, through the season, when it's actually happening, I think it's easier because I tend to record a lot of clips uh, on my laptop like while I'm watching games. So mm -hmm. if I start noticing something in a game that I maybe want to write about, I start recording the film as I'm watching the game while I'm going through it and I kind of take my time just because obviously I don't watch anything live most of the time right? just because of the whole time delay here Yeah. so I can kind of take my time with it and record clips which maybe you know not everyone in the US who watches more games live has you know the opportunity to do so easily um, so I think that can help because then if I've got the film ready to go it's easier to put it straight into an article if I've already got like half the clips I need so does the video work then take you longer than actually writing the actual piece like is it easy to kind of just fill in what you know uh once you've kind of done all this video work 
I think the writing for me still takes longer. Okay. Um, yeah, because I don't add like any graphics into my videos or stuff, so it's it's pretty simplistic. But right. yeah, I think if you if I like have five clips, let's say, and I have a really clear point for each one, that maybe you know you could tweet it out for a quick idea, and that could kind of be it. But if I have a, a clear thought in my head that I can flesh out, those are the kind of times when the writing is easiest because once you already know what you want to say, it's really easy to get it down. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I think sometimes once you do have the film stuff in mind that kind of proves what you want to say, it can be quicker to get the words down. So, yeah, and sometimes, yeah, once you've got the film there, it's easy to flesh out the article around it. But it, it depends. It depends on what the uh, the structure of the piece is like and the kind of ratio of opinion to, like, film analysis, if that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. Like, do you tend to outline your pieces before you write them or do you just kind of do the video stuff and then you have ideas and you just kind of write it it's a yeah I think I generally kind of just get writing I generally have a few ideas in my head of the specific things I want to cover Mm -hmm. um like I said let's say if I've made a few clips from a game I might already have three things or so that I know need to be in the article so I can kind of get the sort of first few paragraphs down and then I know where I need to be going next to kind of cover the points and the clips that I've got in mind. Um, so I generally kind of just go into it fairly quickly. Um, but sometimes I wonder, you know, if you're dealing with a bit of writer's block and that kind of thing, whether planning an article structure out beforehand would be something that, you know, I should do a bit more often. <laughs> How do you go about it? Um, I do write outlines. Um, I think it's partly because of my fiction writing background uh i i like the kind of person who like stands in the shower comes up with a one-liner that i really like and then races out of the shower soaking wet and writes it down because i don't want to lose it so i will kind of write down you know the uh, the basics of here's my beginning line here's my last line i kind of bookend Mm -hmm. it before i start and then it gives me from there i hit i write down all the points that i want to hit in the article and so I don't do like, I wouldn't say like a very, um, uh, you know, filled in meaty outline. It's pretty much a skeleton, but, uh, it, it gives me the basics to go off of. And then if I'm adding video work in, which I, I usually do, I, I do find that it helps add to my own understanding as I'm, uh, as I'm writing the piece. So yeah, that's kind of my usual process. So it's a little disjointed though. <laughs> yeah, no, I do do that as well sometimes. Like you said, I don't have a full outline, but I do find that I often think of the final paragraph of my article before I get to write it. Yeah. So it's often jotting things down on my phone and then I'll copy that over because if I'm going through the day at work, let's say, and I know I can't write the article for another eight hours, it's so easy to just have the ideas pop into your head and you know the line you want to finish with before you actually get to write the whole article. So yeah, that can be frustrating sometimes, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, I do find that uh, it's it's better to have a an ending and uh, a beginning. I think both of those things are more vital than the middle because you can kind of yeah. figure out the middle as you go through it. But if you don't have an ending, you kind of don't know where you're going. I think that's yeah, a problem. Exactly. And then uh, the beginning, I think it's always good to kind of have a bit of a snappy beginning and just catch people's attention, which uh, uh, definitely happens in your article. So I think that uh, I think those things are important. And 
uh, I, I, returning to like the consistency idea too, the off season can make pumping out content hard, uh, especially when you're used yeah. to it. And you know, a lot of bloggers feel that you know they've been writing a bunch, especially if their team like went late into the playoffs or something. And the NBA is also a really um, 365 day sport for the most part now, and people love to write during the off season as well. But during those dog days, which do come, especially when you have an off-season like uh, this one, where a lot of the free agency moves happen all at once, how do you tend to keep yourself motivated? Like, do you keep writing stuff anyway, just like looking for ideas, going back and watching video, like we said, or do you actually take a break, or uh, how do you go about that? Yeah, I definitely take a bit more of a break, just because, you know, having the time that you would normally spend watching games just just frees things up through the week. Mm-hmm. Um, so I do try and you know do more things that I might not do as much through the season, like I neglect reading a lot, you know, different things like that. Um, just because all my time, mostly, uh, you know, when I'm not out, goes into like watching games and stuff like that. When I have the spare time at home, um, I think staying motivated is just. I think yeah, I think you do get to recharge a little bit in a way by having more time off, you know, from the film stuff. Um, you know, from watching things every day necessarily. Um, I mean, fortunately with the Sixers, like there always seems to be something going on. <laughs> so I think that throws up ideas. And now it's like with Summer League even, that creates more content because, you know, if I wasn't covering one specific team, I don't know how much I'd do, but now I can think like, how does Zaya Smith's three-point shot look? Uh, you know, how mm-hmm. does Thibault, you know, do defensively in his first, you know, sort of summer league games and those kinds of things actually become, you know, decent content when you're just covering one team. But I think it's been all right for me for the last couple of years because so much has been changing with the Sixers team. And now there's so much to project about their new season. I think there's always going to kind of be ideas for at least quite a lot of the off season in terms of projecting little bits of fit with the team. So for me, I've found it okay so far to to think of the ideas and stuff and you know be motivated to write about those ideas but it's obviously still pretty early in the off season so maybe in a couple (laughs) of months this will all change I don't know (laughs) uh yeah you mentioned reading as well like during the regular I also find it's uh pretty difficult to read during the regular season if you want to keep up with the NBA um and I'm in like the right time zone um I still find it hard uh the one that matches up. Um, so what sort of things do you read during the off season? Like, do you, do you go back to reading at all? Do you, do you just stick with sports stuff or do you read any, anything else? Uh, more sports stuff. Um, try and read more books when I can. Uh, the solar basketball is what I'm reading at the moment by Ian okay. Thompson. Yeah. Um, stuff like that. I like Stephen King. So I try and get through nice through quite a bit of that. Um, big Stephen King fan over the last couple of years. So, yeah, reading stuff like that and just, yeah, switching off from basketball a little bit more. I think it is, as much as we all miss it during the off-season, you know, having the games to watch, I think is nice being able to sort of recharge a little bit and, yeah, get to do some of that non-basketball stuff that you maybe don't have as much time for um, through the regular season. But, I'm, yeah, I'm guessing you find it the same with reading then. Yeah, when definitely. The comes around. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I'm reading, I read much more in the off-season. Um, do you find that, reading non-basketball stuff affects your writing at all like do you read it like I guess most of the time people just read when they're when they're not reading the stuff related to maybe what they consider consider work 
um, they just read it to read it and they're kind of like, okay, I'm, you know, I'm mm. enjoying myself. But do you ever find yourself reading and you go, you know, this is something different and interesting, but like, I'm kind of like either consciously or subconsciously learning some stuff here that I can kind of apply to sports articles. Cause that's one of my personal favorite things to do with my love of literature is just sort of connecting those two things, sports and literature together. And sometimes just like, you know, words that necessarily aren't used that often in sports or, or, um, you know, random things like, I don't know, hero's journey stuff connect connected to what players are doing and things like that. Like, do you ever find that you're reading and you're like, huh, like this is, this is sort of connected to something I wrote about before. Yeah, no, I do. I do think so. Um, I think, yeah, like you said, maybe language that you wouldn't see as much in sports writing. And even just things, you know, the writers are like like Stephen King, let's say, just how descriptive he is, maybe this sort of sentence variation he uses, you know, in terms of just sentence length, how he varies things, just like small details like that, I think can help, you know, give you ideas, at least for me it does, because I think it can be easy to kind of fall into similar trends with your writing sometimes or mm-hmm. you know I think it's good to keep reading different voices to kind of influence how you can maybe change things up a little bit um or at least give you new ideas um I don't want to feel like my writing goes stale <laughs> so if I yeah I think if you get a bit of inspiration whether it's yeah just a few words um or anything like that maybe adding in a bit more humor I think you know, just little things like that that can give you ideas definitely helps. It's just good to read different things because if you don't have much time to read through the season, most of what you're reading is, or a lot of what you're reading is just proofreading your own stuff. It can be hard to to get new thoughts. <laughs> yeah, I find like reading other things can really help in the readability of your own work. Like you're mentioning with like sentence structure and um you know, you can kind of, once you get to a point of being comfortable with it and, and you're comfortable with your own voice as a writer, you can kind of be a little more flexible in, in what you're doing and what you're choosing to do in certain moments and, you know, where you start a new paragraph and how yeah. long and, and short the sentences are and, and when you want to be jarring to the reader and when you don't and how flowery you want to be, how, you know, not flowery you be, how, on, how bare bones you want to be. That mm. kind of stuff kind of becomes something at your fingertips rather than, you're just doing it or you're not necessarily thinking about it. And I think reading a variation of things can really, uh, really not only influence, but just help in general your own work when it comes to that stuff. So I find that all really important and interesting. So I always love to figure out what other people are reading. Yeah, no, I totally agree. I think, and I think as well with film stuff, like I want to try and be careful in that. I'm not just saying this is how, this is what happens. This is what happens. This is what happens. And Mm -hmm. the, the language and the sentence structure is all just gets really repetitive after a while. Yeah. Um, I think I'm, I'd say I'm a pretty non flowery writer. Right. <laughs> um, I think sometimes people can try too hard just by trying to make something sound good. Yeah. For whereas sure. the, the actual subject and the content of what they're saying doesn't carry a whole lot. It's almost like the Lexus sounds better than <laughs> the actual ideas there. Um, if you're trying a little bit too hard. So I think because I'm I'm not like that at all, or I try not to be too much like that, you don't want to fall too much the other way and just get dull and boring, you know, just churning through 
uh, film descriptions. So I do think, yeah, reading other things, seeing how you can, you know, mix things up, make things a little bit more punchy, make some of your description a little bit more creative in places from reading, you know, nonfiction and different stuff through the offseason. I definitely think it helps. Yeah, there's definitely a balance between substance and flowery language for sure yeah. that I think <laughs> needs to be needs to be met um, for for whatever you're writing to um, kind of be at its best. And that's uh, a kind of a difficult thing. It sounds pretty easy, but it's it's not really. It takes uh, I think it takes everybody a while to get there. And like even with myself, I know I tend to lean a little bit more to the flowery side sometimes, especially mm-hmm. as somebody who loves description, who loves different yeah. kinds of words and. I can find myself going off on a few sentences that are almost just pure, uh, pure description without much, you know, much substance. I I already mentioned what whatever the thing was, the important thing, a couple sentences ago. So I find myself falling into that kind of trap. But uh, yeah, so it's definitely something to to keep in mind as you're writing. I think uh, I think that's about all the time we have today. So uh, I want to thank you for coming on again, Tom. I really appreciate it. Is there anything you want to plug before we go? I think um, not too much, but I should have a uh, Tobias Harris article coming up soon on uh, Liberty Ballers that I'm working on at the moment, um, just looking at how he can continue to fit in well, how he's going to work with the new offence, and how he can kind of bounce back a little bit more uh, with some more ball-handling opportunities. So, yeah, that should be up next week. Sweet. Uh, yeah, you can go read uh, Tom's current article. Again, it's on Liberty Ballers. And it's called The Sixers Are Ready to Embrace a New Identity and Elite Defense. So you can go back there and you can find it. I highly recommend it. It's great. Uh, read all Tom's stuff to, uh, about the Sixers. It's, it's awesome. It keeps me informed as someone who's not constantly following the Sixers. If you're looking for this podcast, you can find it on Anchor.fm. It's called The Writer's Write Podcast. You can find it on the Anchor app if you have it as well. And it's on Apple Podcasts. So you can also find it there. It has a Twitter as well at Writer's Write Pod where links to the episodes will be posted, so you can find that. Uh, my guest articles will also be posted there. And until then, you can follow me, at Howvolution, on Twitter, and you can find my own online work at Raptors Republic. Thank you so much for listening. Sure.